From age to age, your word will stand. For from age to age, your word will stand. For from age to age, your word will stand. For from age to age, your word will stand. For yeah, outstanding. Uh, would you bow with me in prayer? We'll open the scriptures together. Father, come, come bless your people by your spirit and your word. We open our minds, our hearts, our lives to your leadership now and submit to it with trust and gladness. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, today I want to introduce you to someone who for me is, uh, I, I guess, kind of like a role model, a mentor of sorts. And the back end of his story, we'll start the back end of his story in the Bible and we'll work our way to the front. It's in John uh, chapter 19. This happens following the crucifixion, right after the crucifixion of Jesus. And we see that after these things, that would be the crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body, and Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid, so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And the two players in this story are uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And I, I love these guys. They are um, secret followers of Jesus who, go, who come out into the public square uh, with this great act of adoration and care for Jesus as they publicly embrace him and identify with him and bury his body. Um, now, the one that I want you to focus on today with me is, is Nicodemus, um, Nick. Okay? And, it, you know, at first glance, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal that he would step forward and identify with Christ in this very, very public way. Um, but if you understand who Nicodemus is, um, it really, really helps you appreciate what he did here. Um, Nicodemus, John tells us earlier, was a teacher of renown in Israel. He was a ruler and he was a Pharisee, 
One person described him as possibly, as a result of this, one of the wealthiest and smartest men in the city, if not in the nation. And I don't know if you realize it, but there is, amongst teachers in academia, there is a pecking order. Uh, Most of us who are outside of that world don't know it, but there is a very structured pecking order in academia. For instance, here's, this comes from um, a lady named, let's see, what's her name? Ann Curran. She says, first of all, at the top of the heap, there's the dean. And the dean leaps tall buildings in a single bound, is more powerful than a locomotive, is faster than a speeding bullet, walks on water, gives policy to God. The department head leaps short buildings in a single bound, is more powerful than a switch engine, is just as fast as a speeding bullet, and talks with God. The professor leaps short buildings with a running start and favorable winds. He's almost as powerful as a switch engine. He's faster than a speeding BB. He walks on water in an indoor swimming pool, talks with God if a special request is honored. The associate professor barely clears a Quonset hut, loses tug-of-war with a locomotive, can fire a speeding bullet, swims well, and is occasionally addressed by God. The assistant professor, I told you, is pretty elaborate pecking order, makes high marks on the walls when trying to leap tall buildings, is run over by locomotives, can sometimes handle a gun without inflicting self-injury, treads water, and talks to animals. The graduate student runs into buildings, (laughs) recognizing locomotives two out of three times, is not issued ammunition, can stay afloat with a life jacket, and talks to walls. The undergraduate student falls over the doorstep when trying to enter buildings, says, look at the choo-choo, usually outruns the water from a water pistol, plays in mud puddles, and mumbles to himself or herself. And then lastly, but not leastly, the department secretary, who lifts buildings and walks under them kicks locomotives off the tracks, catches speeding bullets in his or her teeth and eats them, freezes water with a single glance, and is God, right? Now, um, in in our story, um, well, first of all, let me me reference it since academia lives closest to us at our local seminary. um, At the top of the pecking order there, apart from the department secretaries, is a band of deans and professors known as the cabinet. And uh, it's not, not furniture, but that's what they call this group of men who lead the seminary. And uh, I think that our Nicodemus, if he was plugged into the, the pecking order of our day, he would have been a member of the cabinet. Okay? He is um, a man of great prestige and great influence. Jesus, it's interesting, will refer to Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel. Not just a teacher, but the teacher. Um, And so if you can imagine, for the teacher of Israel, um, cabinet-level professor, identifying publicly as a follower of Jesus in this way. It would be like, imagine if the deans at the seminary are sitting around and they're evaluating a prominent 
uh, pastor's ministry. This is an author and a speaker. Say the guy filled stadiums, and um, he's recently passed away, and they're trying to, trying to evaluate his ministry, and they decide he's persona non grata, he's, he was a heretic. That's the consensus of the cabinet. But imagine one of those cabinet members standing up in the midst of them all and saying, no, I think he was from God. And uh, I intend to be a pallbearer at his funeral. All of a sudden, whoa, there's a plank loose in the cabinet, right? That would be, that would be a problem. And probably that man identifying with someone who they had declared was persona non grata, not someone from God. Um, if he disagreed with that, he probably would have paid for that. And I, I imagine um, that Nick probably paid a price for his allegiance to Christ too. And honestly, that's why I admire him so much. And, and Joe, his cohort, right? Um, it just You get a sense when you read this account that their, their faith takes this giant public step forward here from secret followers, from dark of night seekers to bold public followers of Jesus. Now, what you need to know is that in terms of Nicodemus and what we know of his life in, in the New Testament, this is Nick 3.0, okay? This is the third time John's gospel has identified uh, Nicodemus. And it's only here at the end, the last reference, that he's this extremely bold public worshiper of Jesus. Now, Nick 2.0 showed up back in John chapter 7. If you want to flip your Bibles back a couple pages, this is the second time we encounter Nick, Nick 2.0. And it says, Nicodemus, in verse 50 of chapter 7, who had gone to um, Jesus before, so Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before and who was one of them, that is one of, one of the religious leaders and rulers, said to them, they are having a debate here, what's going on um, setting-wise, they're having a debate about um, what's, who Jesus is and whether or not they should arrest him. says to his cohorts there, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied to Nicodemus, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. See, the religious leaders here, they're scheming to arrest Jesus. They're looking for a reason. At least a, a significant faction of them are. And and Nick stands in opposition here, kind of subtle opposition, as he questions their procedure. And he says, you know, we haven't even heard from the guy. We haven't called him in and heard from him. Is that, is that lawful? And immediately he, got, he gets derisively put down. Essentially when they say, are you from Galilee too? That's like, that's like accusing him, calling him a backwater hick like that carpenter from Galilee. But we do find him here in this second snapshot of his life, Nick 2.0. We find him publicly advocating subtly for Jesus. Now, we're going to go back and spend the rest of our time in one more encounter that we have with Nicodemus in the New Testament. 
Um, this is Nick 1.0, and it is his nighttime encounter with Jesus, the first time, that's alluded to in both the second and third encounters, and it's found in John chapter 3, and that's where we'll be for the rest of our time. We'll start, the last couple verses hit the stage in chapter 2. It says, now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is, this is an interesting thing. There are many people who believe in Jesus, but Jesus won't entrust himself to them. So there are many people, perhaps because of his miracles, it seems, who believe in him at some level, but Jesus will not disclose himself fully to them. He will not trust them fully, perhaps because they were people who just thought he was like vending machine Jesus, right? We believe in him because we can get miracles from him. We can get what we want from him. But this is the backdrop. This is the setting out of which we meet Nicodemus for the first time. Nick 1.0 is the very next verse. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So it makes you wonder, when he bumps these two stories up against each other, the believers that Jesus didn't trust, and then Nicodemus' story right after him, is, is he saying that Nick, Nick 1.0 is one of those untrustworthy believers? Is he a representation of that? Someone who believes in Jesus in one sense, yet Jesus will not fully trust himself to him. And so at one level, I suppose you could say that this Nick, at this point in time, Nick 1.0, might really be one of those guys. But it's interesting because Jesus does not treat him that way. At least Jesus doesn't leave him there. He entrusts a good deal to Nick during this secretive dark of night encounter. It is one of the most intimate and personal teachings that Jesus ever gives. It seems to me that Jesus sees in Nick 1.0 someone who can be trusted. And so this is what Jesus says to him. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Clearly, Nicodemus totally befuddled by what Jesus is saying to him. On the one hand, he's taking Jesus literally Maybe too literally. He's actually thinking about the process of climbing back into his other's moon, mother's womb. Likely he's an old man. It's not going to happen. It can't be done. Jesus 
what are you talking about? If he's thinking about it in those terms, no wonder he's confused. But he may also be feeling the press of the radical humility that Jesus' teaching is asking of him to become a child, to become an infant, to be reborn, to start all over. Dale Bruner says, this is radical doctrine. Does the already devout Nicodemus really need a whole new birth in order to qualify for the God he already seriously worships? Why doesn't Jesus say more modestly and kindly, just take one more spiritual step, Nicodemus, which I will teach you, or, or do one more biblical obedience, or even just think just a little more highly of me, or add one more theological conviction to your faith. Wouldn't something like that do it for Nicodemus? But be born all over again from above? What is Jesus thinking? He says it's almost as though Nicodemus is saying, what's wrong with the distance I've come? Why are you suggesting a whole new beginning? I don't like your implication. Yes, candidates or beginners need a new start, but do the advanced? Come on, Jesus, give me a little credit here. And as confusing as Jesus' language is to Nicodemus, and, and honestly, sometimes to us, it's clear that Jesus is asking something of Nicodemus that is both impossible on the one hand and terribly humbling on the other. And he's asking that of Nicodemus. And that's what he's asking of us. Don't, don't miss the fact that you're to hear the story standing in Nicodemus' shoes. You and me, we're Nicodemus this morning. So to the best qualified among us spiritually, Jesus says, the thing you most long for in life, the purpose you dream about, what you were born for, you cannot attain that. You must do something that is undoable that is beyond your grasp. He says, you must be born again, or another way to say it is born from above. See, Nicodemus represents the best, the most deserving, the most righteous, and Jesus tells him that even he cannot see the kingdom of God unless he's born from above. See, this, could, this really could be us this morning. We have a lot in common with Nick 1.0. Okay, maybe we're not cabinet-level academics, all right? But we believe Jesus is from God and did miracles, right? We, we're religious, right? We, um, we go to church. Shoot, some of us are church members. Some of us are small group leaders, some of us are professional seminary students. We read our Bibles. We try to obey God mostly. You know, I ran across this sobering quote from 
uh, that great theologian from long ago, John Calvin, he says, only a few remain in the pure obedience to Christ. He says, scarcely one in ten of those who enlist under Christ keep the purity of their faith to the very end. Almost all fall away into corruption, are led astray by the teachers of licentiousness, and betray their faith. Wow. Wow, one in ten. One in ten. I hope he's not right. See, we, we really could be Nick 1.0. We could be good people who are standing on the outside, unknowingly looking in, not really part. No matter how religious we are, we all, Jesus says, every one of us has to be born again. Of all people that seem to really get what Jesus is saying here, there's a, an incredibly liberal theologian named Rudolf Boltmann. I don't quote him often. But listen to what he says. He says, It is stated here by Jesus uncompromisingly that man, as he is, is excluded from salvation, from the sphere of God. For man, as he is, there is no possibility of it. Rebirth means something more than an improvement in man. It means that man receives a new origin. And this is manifestly something that he cannot give himself. Just like, just like we had nothing to do with our being born the first time. See, being members of the church does not guarantee that we have access to God and his kingdom. Which Jesus assumes that we would all, everyone, if we were clothed and in our right minds, we would want that more than anything else in the world. It's the one place, it's the one relationship that you don't want to be on the outside of. God and his kingdom. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Nick, you sense, is grasping the impossibility and the radical humility of what Jesus is telling him he must experience. And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus doesn't waver here. He doesn't soften the message the second time. Instead, he restates it and expounds on the impossible and humiliating proposal that he's put forward. You must be born again, Nick. Even you, Nick, you have to be born again. Even you, North Wakers, you have to be born again if you want to enter the kingdom of God. It's not enough to be here. It's not enough to be a member. 
or a leader or a giver. And now Jesus connects this idea of being born again or being born from above with being born of the Spirit. And while there's lots and lots of really intricate, complicated questions about what Jesus teaches exactly here and the little details, clearly his main point is that this is God's work. That this is something the Spirit of God does to a person. That the Spirit, by the Spirit, they're given a whole new life, a whole new relationship to God that they couldn't gain on their own. Just like he says, we can't predict or understand the way the Spirit accomplishes this, just like the wind seems to blow out of nowhere. We can sure see it, its effects, right? And so it turns out that what Jesus is proposing, this idea of being born again, isn't really impossible after all. It's just impossible for Nick. And it's just impossible for us. It's impossible. Don't miss this. It's impossible for every one of us to do this. This is God's work by by his spirit, God makes a way for a whole new life to come. A whole new life that we need. But Nick is fogged by this. Okay? Jesus has stated it and restated it and he's still in a fog. Because over and over his train of thought is about how can I do this? How could anyone do this? Right? Listen to his language, verse 2. No one can do these signs that you do, Jesus. How, how can a man be born when he's old, in verse 4? How, can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? Verse 9, how can these things be? How can I do it? How could anyone do it? Um, and Jesus' answer is, you can't. can't do it, Nick. Um, my oldest daughter, Corey, when she was in college, she was a high jumper. That's her. Um, going over the bar. And uh, she's a good high jumper. Uh, got, got to compete in college and all that, you know. And most college girls, you can jump between five and six foot somewhere. Um, what do you think would happen if we set the bar for Corey at 10 feet? It's not going to have. She's a college athlete. She's not going to make it. What if we set it at 100 feet and put her in a wheelchair? See, now we're thinking in imagery that is what Jesus is describing to Nicodemus. Can't do it, Nick. Even you, Dean in the cabinet, can't do it. Can't make it. We must be born again from above by the Spirit of God. The best of us. We have no other hope. Okay. Jesus' words elsewhere from Mark chapter 10 are so appropriate here. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible. But not with God. 
for all things are possible with God. It's like God can lift us over the bar, the hundred foot bar. The thing that we could never, ever do without him. The thing we could never do and bring to him and offer to him. These things, knowing the king and his kingdom, Jesus is saying, Nick, it can only happen by the life-giving work of the Spirit of God. And Nicodemus says to Jesus, verse 9, how can these things be? He's still puzzled. And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, honestly, when I read Jesus' teaching here, I feel like Nicodemus, right? I'm trying to sort out what on earth Jesus means by this. It's complicated and it's deep and it's symbolic. And, and I feel like saying, Jesus, what, how can these things be? And Jesus says back to me, are you a pastor of my church and you don't understand these things? But briefly, the idea of these verses seems to be that the problem lies not just in Nick's intelligence or his ability to figure it out but it has to do with believing the language of belief comes up you won't believe me jesus says it's not so much that nick or or even me or you can't make sense of it but we can't make sense of it such that we'll trust ourselves to it we can't wrap our minds around it to the extent that we'll believe it But here Jesus is claiming to be the son of man who has had access to heaven. That was his first home before he descended to live life on the earth. And he is the only one who can explain these things in a trustworthy fashion to us. Here we see Jesus is much more at this point than Nick 1.0 has grasped. He's not just a rabbi. He's not just a teacher. He's not just even someone who comes from God. Not even someone who comes from God and performs miracles. He's more than that. He's the only one who has direct access to God, who has been to heaven and can reliably show us the way back. Dale Bruner exhorts us. He says, Do we want clear knowledge of God in heaven? Then listen to this Jesus on earth. He is the one, the only one, in fact, who has been up there and who knows the way back there. Jesus says this of himself. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Jesus is claiming to be that son of man. The one who knows. The only one who knows. And he goes on to say, and as Moses 
lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Okay, what is Jesus talking about? Lifting up snakes in the wilderness. Um, It goes back to the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. Um, The people were wandering in the desert, right? Wandering in the wilderness, um, lost on their way, ceasing to follow God's directives. And the people then spoke against God and against their leader, Moses. They said, why have you, here, I'll show it to you. People spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in a wilderness? You remember this? Their grumblings. For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food, the food that God had provided. And so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, And set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Um, John Piper points out a few important things from that story for us real briefly. He says, number one, the serpent on the pole is not preventative. It is forbidden people. Number two, the poison is in them, and without divine intervention, they will die. Actually, that's just the same thing. Number two, the snakes in the camp are from the Lord. He sent them. The wrath of God is on this people for their sin of ingratitude and murmuring and rebellion. Number three, this means that God chooses to rescue people from his own curse. It's a picture of the curse itself. Number four, all they have to do in order to be saved from God's wrath is to look at his provision hanging on a pole. So they're under the judgment of God for their sin, and yet God makes a provision for them. And all they have to do is look at the serpent, look at the snake hanging on a pole. Then he recounts the story of um, this man's conversion. This is Charles Spurgeon. He was one of the great, if not the great preacher back in his day in in the 1800s. Um, but he recounts the story of how he came to faith. The day was January 6th, 1850. Spurgeon was not at that time quite 16 years old yet. And he writes this. He says, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. And in that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people, and the minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. 
at last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, tailor, something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach, and he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. And the text was this from Isaiah 45. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Spurgeon says of this little tailor-turned-preacher, he did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. And the preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now looking don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. He says, but then the text says, look unto me. Many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. Ye will never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No. Look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. He says, then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating and great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I will rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. He says, when he had gone to about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. And then he looked at me, Spurgeon says, under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger, and just fixing his eyes on me, as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. He said, well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, struck right home, and he continued, and he said, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text, but if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. He says, then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look. 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 You have nothing to do but to look and live. He says, I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else, he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away, he says. See, the only solution made available to those snake-bit people 
The only one made possible, the only effective solution for ancient Israel was to look upon the serpent lifted up upon a tree in hope that it would heal them. And Jesus says in our story that that serpent was pointing to him. And that our only solution, the only one made available to us, is to look upon the one who was nailed upon a tree in faith, in hope, to trust him to be our sin bearer, to take upon the cross that which would damn us for all eternity if we were to bear it ourselves. And then Jesus says that which is so familiar. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is our great and only sure hope. That whoever looks, whoever believes in the son will not perish but will be born again to eternal life. As we close, listen closely to the next word Jesus says, because essentially Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and to us, believe or else. Okay? Listen to his strong words. These are Jesus' words. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, without Christ, Jesus teaches us, there is only condemnation and judgment. But he, by the Spirit, has made a way for Nick 1.0s to become 2.0s and even 3.0s. Bold and public followers. We would call them mature and ministering worshipers of God. And the whole trinity's at work here, right? The Spirit gives new birth, and God the Father sends His Son in love, extending the grace that even a man as good as Nicodemus desperately needed to enter the kingdom of God. So this morning, do you have friends that you think are Nick 1.0. They're really good people. Might even be really religious people. Morally upstanding people. Who believe Jesus was sent by God. Maybe even someone who could do miracles. But they are trusting that they might be good enough one day. They're trusting in their own efforts in their own good deeds. Let me encourage you this morning. Pray for your friends. Pray for your good friends.
pray for your well-behaved, successful, moral friends. They have no hope outside of Christ. Jesus says they must be born again. They must be born again. Or as he himself taught, they will be condemned before God because they did not believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Their sin bearer, their only hope. Share this story with them. Read it with them. Ask them what they think of it. Ask them if they see themselves in it. You might be, this morning, have clarity that you're Nick 1.0. You are that person. You walked in here thinking that you just might be okay with God. You're a decent person. You're a church member. And Jesus warns you, even you, Jesus says, you must be born again through faith in me. As the Son of God lifted up to bear your sins away and to bear you to God, you must look to Jesus. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? It is an odd thing, Father, that the church has become one of the most confusing places on earth concerning this. That how if we're around it long enough, somehow, somehow we think we're good enough. And terrifying stories abound of pastors and missionaries and even the teacher of Israel who one day awoke to the reality that they needed to be born again by the Spirit of God. They need to look, just look to Christ. They needed that too. And so this morning I pray for this church family. I pray for us. I pray that you give us clarity on this matter, personal clarity on this matter. And to know that there's no shame in admitting our need for Christ. There is great danger and folly in thinking that we don't need him. So Lord, now extend grace as, as we acknowledge our sin. Acknowledge that we cannot be good enough. Acknowledge that Christ is the very Son of God sent to walk this earth to bear our sins for us. And Lord, we... Most all of us know someone who looks a lot like Nick. Help us be the bearers of this good news to them. Send us as your people to bring hope and life and mercy and forgiveness uh, to those who need it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And now together as God's people, we want to celebrate the Lord's table. We want to remember that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That we remember together the love of Christ for us, what that cost him. We remember that on the night on which he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
the same way, after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup, it's the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me.